Let's just uh, bow our hearts as we come humbly before God's incredible word together, shall we? Let's just pray. Father, as we turn now to Scripture, mm-hmm. we turn now to this book of truth, we just pray that you speak to us this morning. Father, as we review and look at these historical accounts, things that took place long ago in Israel, Father, help us to see how these things impact our own lives. Lord, your word reminds us that the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that we would know that hope, we would see it, Lord, in the things that we see this morning, to realize that you are a God who is so gracious, so merciful. But, Lord, you're also a God of justice. And, Father, we thank you once again for Jesus, where we see all of those things Come colliding together, your justice and your mercy and your grace. And that through Jesus' sacrifice, we can have this great hope, this eternity that is promised us. And so, Lord, we just give you this time. We pray you speak to us now through your word that Jesus will be exalted and that we would grow in knowledge and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We are up as far as chapter 13 now of Second Kings. Um, just again, just looking through the history of the nation of Israel predominantly. As I said before, Chronicles tends to be the history of the southern kingdom of Judah, whereas Israel focuses more on the northern kingdom of Israel. So let's jump straight in. So Second Kings chapter 13, verse 1. And we read, In the three and twentieth year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned 17 years. Now, Joash, if you remember last week, he was the king of Judah. We focused on predominantly. Uh, He's now around about 30 years of age. He was just seven when he became king. Uh, Incredibly young. But you remember that situation, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, she'd kind of claimed the throne. She'd killed all of the king's seed as far as she knew. She thought she'd put an end to the royal line of David. But of course, we saw this wonderful um, act of, of obedience um, by this, uh, this lady, Yehoshiba, who takes this young child, just a year old at the time, and hides him. And then for six years, they keep uh, Joash hidden until then we find um, the priest goes and presents this man, uh, this young boy rather, to the, to the nation. And he's enthroned as king. So now, we're sometime a little bit on from that. This is now... As we see there, the 23rd year of his reign, um, and in the 23rd year, we're now told, jumping back in our focus to the northern kingdom, we're now looking at the, one of the sons of um, uh, Jehu. Remember Jehu had been the king that had killed um, one of the uh, sons of Ahab, and also the son of uh, the king of the southern kingdom. If you look at the uh, chart, you'll see... Again, how this all maps out. So, um, Joash here uh, is the king that we're going to be focusing on. Uh, he, uh, sorry, uh, this is the, the southern kingdom, sorry. Yes, yeah, so Jehoash, uh, in the, also known as Joash, this is the one we've been looking at. We're seven years old when he comes to the throne. Um, and Ahaziah had been put to death, uh, the king previously, um, by Jehu in the north. So if we look at the northern kingdom again, Jehu had come. He'd put to death Jehoram, again, one of the, the sons of Ahab. 
And as a result, he comes to the throne. Because of his obedience in putting to an end the line of Ahab, God says that his children of the fourth generation will sit on the throne. And that's exactly what we see. And so we're now going to be looking at the first of his sons, as Jehu uh, passes off the scene. Jehoaz uh, now comes on. For 17 years he's going to reign. Elisha is still on the scene. We're going to see Elisha uh, come into play this morning as well. So that's kind of the period of history we're in. And we read in verse 2, and he, so again referring to uh, Jehoaz, um, did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. He departed not therefrom. Now, once again, this refrain, speaking of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the first king of Israel, this, this individual that was around at the time of Solomon, um, fled during Solomon's reign, but then comes back afterwards when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes to the throne. Um, and he has a great opportunity to trust God, to allow God to establish his throne, and yet he doesn't. And if you remember, the great sin that he did was to establish these two golden calves, uh, one up in Dan, up the north of Israel, and one in Bethel, uh, down the southern part of the northern kingdom. And he leads Israel into idolatry, and as a result, every time this individual's mentioned now, we see Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to sin. I mean, what a terrible kind of tag to have for all eternity, that you're, you're the one that's remembered for this one thing. You know, of all the things that you could be remembered for, remembered for leading others astray. And of course, there's lots of warnings that we could speak of in Scripture to those that would lead other people astray. Um, and just a few comments here. I mean, we're told here, he did that which was evil. You know, he was probably doing a lot of things that he thought was right in his own eyes. But notice it's in the sight of the Lord. And that's really the key, because a lot of people these days have their own opinion of what is right and what is wrong. We mentioned earlier this whole situation, this Ashley Madison list and so on. And there's a lot of people saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. It's not really a problem. And people are trying to create their own morality and say what's right and what's wrong. But, you know, it doesn't matter because ultimately what matters is God's opinion. And we're told that this king did that which was evil in God's sight. You see, you're not going to answer to yourself on Judgment Day. You're not going to answer to your friends or peers or acquaintances. You're going to answer to God. And so it's God's opinion that really matters. And so we see, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, Notice that God doesn't check social media or go with public opinion. Because God is outside of time. And God's rules, God's laws don't change with current trends. You know, our view of what is sinful really is not relevant. It doesn't matter how we want to try and reinterpret things and bring them into our modern culture. None of that matters because God is outside of time. You see, God knows the trends that will be coming in the next 10, 15, 20 years if he tarries. God already knows the way the world will go. And before God established his laws, he knew what was in mankind's hearts. And so God's laws just go through time and eternity. We can't brush them aside as if they don't matter. It is God who makes the rules and we need to be subservient to him. You see, he's the one that's going to hold all to account. Interestingly, in Romans 2, verse 15 to 16, we just read there, of it's coming up partway through the verse, but which show the works of the law written in their hearts. You're speaking of you and I, you're talking of the people of the world. You know, in our hearts, God's law is written already. And we're told, their conscience also bearing witness. You can't get away from the fact that God has placed within each person a sense of right and wrong. 
And by the way, you can't evolve that. That's not something that can come about by random processes. That's not something that's to do with, with chemicals or atoms or whatever else. This is to do with something that is non-physical. This is to do with our conscience, our thought processes. And of course, we use our brain, but our brain doesn't control us. We use our brain in the same kind of way we use a computer. Otherwise, you'd be the, the prisoner and the victim of your brain. Whatever your brain decided, you'd have to do. No, no, that's not the way it is. We use our brain. But we are more than that. The Bible says that we are made up of body, soul, and spirit. And so this verse tells us that people's conscience convicts them. They may not admit it. They may not agree with what you say. But deep down, they know the truth. Even people like Dawkins and all these people that are so quick to try and reject God. You know, we're told in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, no God. We read in the translations often, it says, the fool has said in heart, there is no God. There is has been inserted for readability and so on. But really what the, the Hebrew is saying, the fool has said in his heart, I do not want God. That's what Dawkins has done. He hasn't disproved or sorry, proven the, the, the fact that God doesn't exist. He can't prove that. He knows. Oh, you may remember some years ago that really daft advertising campaign that Dawkins and others uh, embarked upon. And you may have seen some of the London buses that were going around. I said, there probably is no God. Right? Why would you even spend money to make such a ridiculous statement? It's saying, well, we really don't know. We can't be sure. And it was just a, a, such a foolish thing. Again... Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts. The meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. You see, once again, men will be judged not by what they deem right, wrong, or acceptable, or not acceptable. They'll be judged by the perfect standard, by Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 verse 4, speaking of the Bible itself, the Word of God, it says, For the Word of God is quick, that means it's alive, and powerful, living and powerful, some translations say, and sharper than any two-edged sword. I mean, from a physical point of view, you think of a sharp two-edged sword that could just slice and cut, whatever, but we're saying that the Bible is sharper than that, in the spiritual realm, because it pierces even to the defining asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. What it's saying is it divides between body, that which is physical, soul, that's who we really are, and our spirit, that which has been given by God, our conscience in effect. The word of God will divide between body, soul, and spirit. And we're told it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As we said earlier, this Ashley Madison list that's uh, made the news at the moment, it's dealing with actions, things that people have done, but it can't really truly reveal the thoughts and the intents of people's heart. But God will. God knows all of those things. And the Bible exposes us as we really are. This is why it's interesting, you know, when you look in the Old Testament, after the children of Israel had left Egypt, they journeyed through the wilderness, they get to Sinai, and then for a while they camp there. In fact, for two years they camp there. And one of the things they do is they melt down all of the mirrors, these bronze mirrors that the ladies had had that they'd taken with them. And they end up making from those mirrors the laver, this big bath, in a sense, that was built at God's instruction. God gave the instructions to Moses. And every piece of the, the furniture that they had for the tabernacle, everything that's made has some sort of spiritual reason for it. And all, all the pieces that were in the temple. But the laver seems to symbolize and, and be representative of the word of God. 
And you can look in a number of commentaries and they'll give you the details and why people have come to that conclusion. But it's interesting that the laver was made of these mirrors. You, you just saw a reflection of yourself. And that's exactly what the Bible does. The Bible gives us a reflection of who we really are. The Bible is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You know, when we study scripture, it's the Bible that speaks. It's the Bible that, that cuts. Yes, the Lord will use pastors and ministers you know, as kind of mouthpieces to speak the words of Scripture. But actually, it's the Bible itself that has power. I have no power. But the Word of God is living and powerful. And so we read in verse 3 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. I mean, it's just so sad, isn't it, that we have a king who chooses to follow after somebody who had such a bad track record. We look back and we see nothing good of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And as we're a few steps further on now in the history of the nation, it would be so easy for this king that's coming to the throne to think, you know what, I don't want to make those mistakes. And yet, he does. And so God, we find his anger is kindled against Israel. The whole nation suffered because of the disobedience of this man. And he delivered them into the hand of Hazel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadid, the son of Hazel, all their days. So there's a period now where Syria are a real threat and a problem to the northern kingdom of Israel. I just want to, just for a moment, take you through a bit of history. I'm not sure whether you like history. I quite enjoy history. The reason I like his, history is because it really is his story. You know, everything about history just links into scripture some way or another. And it's just wonderful as you see God working down through the ages. Just to look at the, the history of the kings of Syria, also in scripture referred to as Aram. If we go back to First uh, Kings, we actually find there was a number of kings um, that lived in and around this area. These are the names. One of them was by the name of Damascus, which is where Damascus obviously gets its name from, named after this individual. Uh, individual by the name of Rehob, and Maaka, Zobar, and Gesher. Now, this goes right the way back, uh, if you're tracing scripture, to the time after the flood and as people started spreading out around the world. And we find that um, from Zobar comes this individual Rezan. Now, what happens is seemingly um, that Rezan flees from his master, Zobar, and ends up and lives in Damascus. So over a long period of history, um, Rezan ends up leaving from Zobar uh, and ends up in this geographical area, making camp in Damascus. And in a sense, becomes the first real king of Syria, in the way that we would understand it. We then find that his son, um, Tabrimon uh, comes to the throne, and again, uh, there's various uh, conjecture over the length of time of some of these reigns. But then we get on to a king that we do know a little bit about. Rezan, by the way, is mentioned in First Kings uh, 11, uh, Isaiah speaks of as well. Um, but then we come to Ben-Hadid first. Now, one of the reasons I'm showing you this morning is because you'll notice that we have three Ben-Hadids. Now, what gets confusing, if you're reading through Kings and you see Ben-Hadid mentioned, you're going to see him mentioned as the father of Hazel and also the son of Hazel. And if you're not sure, that can get quite confusing. So, we have Ben-Hadid I, again mentioned here, 1 Kings 15 uh, and so on. Uh, then we have Ben-Hadid II, and this is the, the Syrian king who is prominent through Elisha's ministry. And seemingly, he was the king who had a servant by the name of Naaman. Of course, we're familiar with this leper that comes down and ends up speaking to Elijah, and he's cured of his leprosy. 
Um, and also, this is the king that sends these bands of raiders into Israel. Um, and that we mentioned we were singing that song this morning, God of Angel Armies. Um, really drawn from that portion that we were studying a short while ago, where these armies of Syria um, are coming. And of course, Elisha is there and he looks and his servant's panicking. And he says, you know, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And his eyes are open and he sees the, the chariots of the Lord, these chariots of fire, surrounding the armies of Syria. And then the Syrian army are blinded. They're led to uh, um, Samaria, to the king. And eventually they're then sent home. So that all takes place during the reign of Ben-Hadid II. Then we get on to now Hazel. And this is where we're kind of at today, uh, this individual. Um, now... We find uh, that he actually had killed his own father, and this was a prophecy that Elisha had given. Um, Ben-Hadid had been poorly, and clearly he'd heard about Elisha and the things that Elisha had done. And so he sends uh, his own son. And in the text, you don't, you don't realize at that point necessarily that Hazel is his son. Um, but he sends his own son to go and find out, will he get better? And Elisha says, yeah, he's going to recover, but you're going to kill him. And then he gives his prophecy to Hazel of all the wickedness that he's going to do. And Hazel's really offended. I wouldn't do that. Of course, you know, we all make these great promises of the things that we wouldn't do. Um, but, of course, without the grace of God, the depths of our own heart is just unfathomable. You know, and I think it's Oswald Chambers that makes a comment that there's no criminal or crime that's been committed uh, in actuality that we are not capable of in possibility. You know, we, we tend to think, I could never do that. I would never do that. Yes, you would. Yes, you could. You know, you may have got to a place where you think that, you know, these things are just so abhorrent you'd never, ever contemplate. Well, the Bible says you would. The Bible says that the state of our heart is just incurably wicked. And sometimes God, by his grace and his mercy, just gives us a glimpse of what we would be like without that grace. Oh, but praise God for that grace. What a change that takes place in the life of somebody who puts their trust in Jesus and then becomes a recipient daily of that grace. You know, we were singing earlier about that song about God's great grace. And, you know, I've been challenged recently, the whole concept of you know, every breath that we take, we should be using it for God's glory. Every breath is a gift of his grace. How we live our lives. And we've got great accounts of people in scripture like Elisha and others that live their lives for God's glory. So, we go on, and then we find that Hazel then has a son, Ben Hadid III, also in sacred history known as Mari, M-A-R-I, mentioned in Second Kings 13. And then we're going to get to Rezen, mentioned in Second Kings 15. And that really brings us to the end of the kings of Syria. And because after that we find Assyria then comes to, to the fore, and really Syria gets swallowed up by the Assyrian Empire. Um, we'll look at the Assyrian Empire in the weeks to come because there's lots to go through. That The first mention of Damascus actually goes all the way back to Genesis 14, just as a, an interesting uh, point there. Um, Eliezer, the servant of Abraham, he was actually from Damascus, to mention. Um, but there's a couple of scriptures I just want to have a look at in Jeremiah 49, Isaiah 17, and Amos chapter 1. The reason for this is because we hear so much of Syria today on the news, don't we? It's such a big topic of, of news bulletins and so on. Let's just look at Jeremiah first of all. Jeremiah 49, 24, 27. And this is like a, um, see if this kind of fits, does this picture fit with what we see going on in the world? Because these scriptures we're looking at speak of the destruction of Damascus capital of Syria. 
And in history, you'll see that Damascus has always been a prominent city. At one point, it was one of the largest cities in the the ancient world. Uh, It had a population of over 500,000 at one time. Antioch also, another really major city, very prominent in the early Christian church. Paul, of course, on his way to Damascus when he's converted. Let's read this scripture, Jeremiah 49, picking up verse 24. Damascus is waxed feeble and turns herself to flee and fear has seized on her. Now just think of the, the things that you've seen in the headlines on the news recently regarding what's going on in Syria now. Anguish and sorrows have taken her as a woman in travail. How is the city of praise, praise not left, the city of my joy? Therefore, therefore her young men shall fall in her streets. And all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. And I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus, and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadid. Just, just a comment there. What's happening right now with ISIS and with all the troubles and the wars that are going on in Syria, the civil war that's going on in Syria? What, what, are the, what do we see going on? Well, a lot of the ancient ruins that exist are being destroyed. They've been pulled down. What does this scripture tell us? I mean... One thing I remember Chuck Misler said once is that he's revised and reviewed his opinion on scripture a number of times as he's grown in his spiritual walk. But he said every time it's always been to take scripture more literally. And look what this verse 27 says. I will kindle a fire on the wall of Damascus and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadid. You know, these ancient ruins, these historical remnants that we've got that have given us so much archaeology are being destroyed. Isaiah 17 says, The burden of Damascus. Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city. It shall be a ruinous heap. I don't know about you, but I've seen lots of images and things on the television of what Syria is like now. It's just a war zone, isn't it? Everywhere. You know, are we seeing the fulfillment of these prophecies? In Amos chapter 1. Verse 3 and 4, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing instruments of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Hazel, which will devour the palaces of Ben-Hadid. These scriptures. I'll leave them with you to to look at it and take to, to further study yourself if you want to. But I think it's very interesting, the things that the scripture speaks of, uh, and things that I think we are seeing fulfilled in the days that we are living in. So, back into the text in Second uh, Kings thirteen, picking up verse four, and Jehoaz bought, uh, sorry, besought the Lord, and the Lord hearkened unto him. So he humbles himself before God. I mean, foolish to getting into this mess in the first place, but he finally humbles himself before God, for he saw the oppression of Israel. Well, at least he wasn't so hard-hearted that he just would be like Ahab, who just kind of turned away. And but he seeks God. Because he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. You know, why is it sometimes we have to come to that place where we're in a place where we're oppressed before we cry out to God? And the Lord gave Israel a savior so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin, but walked therein and there remained a grove also in Samaria. God is faithful when we cry to him. You know, so many scriptures that remind us of this. The problem is that people often cry out to God 
in their times of trouble, then the moment they get what they want, they forget God and carry on as they were. Very much like the situation here. You know, really, this is kind of one of those situations that people kind of only want God for the blessings. And that's really the whole challenge and theme of the book of Job. That's what Satan challenges God with and says, Job only loves you because of the blessings. And God says, no, that's not true. And we find that that situation is kind of proven in a kind of a legal situation. That Job loved God because he was God. What about you and I? Do we love God because of the blessings? Do we love God because of the good things, the good times, when everything is going well? And do we love God when things are not going so well? Or in those times, do we start to question God and doubt God? Do we then start to look to our own ways of dealing with the situation problems? You know, it's easy to look at these accounts historically and think that that was then. Of course, if we would have been there, we wouldn't have been so silly. But actually, we do make these mistakes in our own lives. You know, we cry out to God. God comes in and incredibly brings deliverance, relief. And then it's like, right, thanks God, and off we go, carry on doing what we're doing. You know, God wants us to turn around, to think differently, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that we don't carry on making the same mistakes. And again, just to remind you, these things are written that we might learn from these mistakes. It's a wonderful thing when people seek the Lord. Of course, even that is a gift of God's grace. Notice that we're told that the Lord gave Israel a saviour. We're not given the name of this individual at this point. We don't know who this is or quite how it happened. We're just given the headline details that the Lord responded somebody sought him. Psalm 70 verse 4 says, Let all those that seek thee rejoice and be glad in thee. And let such as love thy salvation say continually, let God be magnified. Jeremiah 29 13 says, And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. And yet we're also told that there is none that truly seeks after God. Because all are fallen away, all have fallen astray. None of us really, truly seeks after God and evidenced here as we see with this king. Nevertheless, we see. Okay, let's move on. Verse 7 says, Neither did he, now we're talking about Ben-Hadid, leave, this is the king of Syria, leave of the people of Jehoshaphat, but 50,000 horsemen and 10 uh, chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and he made them like uh, the dust by threshing. So what happens is ben Havid effectively totally immobilizes the army. I'm just reminded of that little phrase, a sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. You know, so true. And the sin of this king, Jehoaz, is left with just 53 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 footmen. And that's, his army is really obliterated. You know, never did he think by just going and worshipping some golden calves was he going to bring this on him and his people. But unfortunately, so often people rush into sin without stopping to think of the consequence. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash... His son reigned in his stead. You know, he is what a, a tragic waste of a life. That this king comes to the throne. He could have had such a great opportunity. You know, Jehu didn't get it all right, but at least he, there was some obedience. But now his son Jehoaz comes to the throne. He could have at least tried to follow his father a bit. 
What a waste. But really, this short bit we have of him is, is really all that we have is of his obituary. You know, how will our lives be viewed in eternity? You know, will we be concerned about success or will we be more concerned about our obedience to God? That's really what matters. Jeremiah is a great example of somebody who, by the world's standards, was not successful. But that man was obedient. Verse 10, in the 13th, 7th year of Joash, king of Judah, began, um, this is where we get confusing, Joash, the son of Jehoaz, to reign over Israel and Samaria, reigned 16 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. But he walked therein. And the rest of Acts, the Acts of Joash and all that he did, and his might wherewith he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat upon his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. I mean, this is tragic. This king doesn't even get a few more comments. I mean, literally, he comes to the throne and he dies. And that's all we get of this king. So, just to help us now, we've just looked the career of this individual it's now this Joash that we've just seen we're really not told anything about him he does clearly he's not a good king he doesn't follow after God and we're told that he comes to the throne and really all God records about him is that's it he's gone and now we're on to Jeroboam now we're going to actually backtrack a little bit in terms of the historical narrative so stay with this now Elisha was fallen sick of the sickness wherewith he would die and Joash the king of Israel came down unto him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And Elisha said unto him, Take bow and arrows. And he took unto him bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put thine hand upon the bow. And he put his hand upon it. And Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek till thou have consumed them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them and he said unto the king of Israel, smite upon the ground. And he smote thrice and stayed. So he gets these arrows in his hand and Elisha says, bang the ground. Strike the ground. And he goes, done. And we can see Elisha is really quite dismayed and disappointed with this king. You know, we're talking about, really, the whole issue here of smiting God's enemies. And Elisha is really giving this king the opportunity to show what's in his heart. You know, how does he feel about God's enemies? And really, it's a very kind of feeble attempt that we see here. And Elisha is going to rebuke him for it in a moment. You know, but for us, what is our attitude towards God's enemies? What is our attitude towards sin? Do we see it as, oh, it doesn't really you know, trouble me too much? I'm not, you know. Do we hate sin as God hates sin? I mean, that's one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. You have a hatred towards sin. And the man of God, Elisha, was wroth with him and said, Thou should have smitten five or six times. Then thou would have smitten Syria till thou had consumed it. Whereas now thou shalt smite the Syria but three times, but thrice. And Elisha died, and they buried him, and the bands of the Moabites invaded the land of the coming in of the year. Interesting here, just to note, the influence that this godly man has on the spiritual condition of the land. The moment he dies, immediately God's enemies come in. You know, the Bible speaks in Second Thessalonians 7, 2, verse 7. 
of the mystery of iniquity. It speaks about the days that are coming ahead of us when it's going to be very, very bad, dark and gloomy in this world. And it talks about a time when, I believe in the context, it's talking of the Holy Spirit who indwells the church being taken out of this world. And it says that this mystery of iniquity will be restrained until the one that is restraining it is taken out of the way. And just as the situation with Elisha, when the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, when the church is taken out of the time of the rapture, then, if I may use this expression, all hell will break loose on earth. Earth will become a very, very unpleasant time. And you'll read in the beginning of the book of Revelation just how horrible uh, it will be on the earth. As suddenly there are no prayers of the saints influencing, affecting what's going on on this earth. You know, we may sometimes think that the church isn't very effective, but the church has an enormous impact on this world. And when the church is taken out, we'll see just what a difference it will make. And just as here, with Elisha, when he moves off the scene, when he dies, immediately things get bad. You see, the, the, the influence that godly people have, and break that down to your own life, the influence that you have in your workplace, or around those that you spend time with. And it came to pass that as they were burying a man, that behold, they spied a band of men, and they cast the man into the sepulchre of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. It's an incredible situation there. Trying to hide now from these uh, bands of uh, you know, the enemy that are infiltrating the land, and they see a, a, a band of men, some of the enemy, some way off. And so they're in the middle of trying to bury this individual, so they just cast him into any old tomb. It happens to be the tomb that Elisha had been laid in. And when this dead man then touches the bones of Elisha, he comes back to life. I mean, you can imagine what his friends thought as he kind of walks out of the tomb, you know, brushing himself off. I wonder what they thought. I wonder what they, they said. Clearly, it becomes known that this was the grave that Elisha had been buried in. And this man comes out. You know, Barnes actually makes a comment. He says, This miracle of Elisha after his death is more surprising than any of those which he performed during his lifetime. And interestingly, he says, The Jews regarded it as his highest glory. We've looked, a lot of the miracles of Elisha we've looked at. I think it would be very interesting because they almost don't make sense on the surface. It's like, why did God do that? But if you notice, and I think the reason we have this miracle here is because they speak, all of the Elisha's, all the miracles of Elisha speak of God's grace and they reveal God's character. They speak of attributes of God. You know, we looked already how the names of God seem to be interwoven into the types of miracles that Elisha does. I think it makes a fascinating study. And if you want to take this further, please do so, and I'll be happy for some feedback, because there's at least 16 miracles we have recorded of Elisha. You know, there's a number of different names of God through Scripture. And I'm not certain, and this is not doctrine, but I wouldn't be at all surprised that every single one of those, if you go through in detail, you will find that everyone represents a different aspect or, or uh, a different aspect of God's character, reveals an, another aspect of one of the names of God as revealed in Scripture. You see, there was another righteous man who died and was put into a tomb. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And I think this 
is really another lesson that we were as dead men. We were being cast into a tomb. But when we come into contact with Jesus, you see again how God, through these miracles, just speaks of his grace. You see, we have been brought back to life, not because anything we deserve. This man was dead. He hadn't earned or deserved anything. But just touching the bones of Elisha, he's brought back to life. Well, for you and I, when we reach out and we touch Jesus, when we reach out and accept him, receive him as our Lord and Savior, then we're given new life as well. We're told that Hazel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. Really, that's just a repetition of things we've already looked at. And the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion on them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And would not destroy them, neither cast uh, he them from his presence as yet. So Hazel the king of Syria died, and Ben-Hadid his son reigned in his stead. And Joash the son of Jehoaz, again this is just recapping what we just saw a moment ago, took again out of the hand of Ben-Hadid the son of Hazel the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoaz his father by war. And three times we're told, did Joash beat him and recover the cities of Israel. Just as Elisha had said, that three times smiting the ground. You know, just that question again about sin. You know, what would it have been like if when Elisha said to Joash, you know, bang the ground three times with his arrows, strike the ground, smite the ground, clearly in context of his hatred towards the king of Syria and what they were doing. And he just three times and that's done. You know, what would it be like if you and I didn't just show so much leniency to sin in our lives? But made sure that we beat sin down. And by God's grace, never allow it to have a foothold in our lives. Again, just confirmation that Israel had victory over Syria three times, just as Elisha had prophesied. Let me just read through verse chapter 14. Once again, a lot of this is just narrative, so then we'll just quickly draw to a close. In the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, reigned Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah. So now just again, we've got Joash now in the north of Joash in the south. He was 25 years old when he began to reign and reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoidan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. What a pleasing thing it is to see that in, in scripture. Because we've seen so many that did wrong. He that did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. And so, yet not like David his father, he did according to all the things as Joash his father did. Howbeit the high places were not taken away as yet the people did sacrifice and burn incense on the high places. Now they may have been burning incense to God. But the problem is, this soon becomes a recipe for disaster. You know, they should have totally destroyed these things. God has said that these things, these high places were where the pagans worshipped. Where they had their altars and their images to Baal and Ashtaroth and so on. And all too soon, by mixing in with the pagan cultures, they started to become more like them. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 5 just says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This High places. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, we mustn't let those high places remain. You know, if there's something that has troubled you in your walk as a Christian, 
Don't give it any room. Bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Don't let those high places remain because they will become something that will pull you down. And it came to pass as soon as the kingdom was confirmed in his hand that he slew the servants which had slain the king his father. If you remember, uh, Joash's father had been killed uh, at the end of his reign. And so now he takes vengeance. And we're told, but the children of the murderers he slew not according to that which is written in the book of the law of Moses, wherein the Lord commanded, saying, the fathers shall not be put to death of the children, nor the children be put to death of the fathers. But every man shall be put to death for his own sin. And he slew of Edom in the valley of salt ten thousand and took sailor by war and called the name of it Jokthiel unto this day. Then Amaziah sent messages to Joash, the son of Joaz, the king of Ju- uh, Je- sorry, son of Jehu, king of Israel. So now the king of Judah sending a message up north. He says, "Come, let us look one another in the face." And this isn't just a you know, should we have a chat? Should we get together for a coffee? This is a kind of statement of aggression. And Joash, the king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, "The thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the seed that was in Lebanon, saying, Give thy daughter to my son to wife.'" And there passed by a wild beast that was in Lebanon and trod down the thistle. And that's his little kind of riddle in the sense he gives. But then he says, Thou hast indeed smitten Eden. Yes, you've had success over Edom. And thine heart has lifted thee up. You know, now you're thinking you, you're delusions of grandeur. He says, Glory of this. You know, be content with what you've got. And stay at home. Tarry at home. For why should thou meddle to thy hurt? That thou should fall, even thou and Judah with thee. So, now the king up in the northern kingdom. So, the second son of uh, Jehu now we're looking at, or the grandson, sorry, of Jehu, is now saying, look, don't come and meddle. But we're told in verse 11, Amaziah would not hear. Therefore, Jehoash, the king of Israel, went up. And he and Amaziah, king of Judah, looked one another in the face at Beth Shemeth, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was put to the worst before Israel. And they fled every man to their tent. You know, there's a lesson here in not fighting battles. The Lord has not called you to fight. You know, once again, as Christians, sometimes we get involved in things and we try and solve things. We try and deal with things. But God hasn't given us instruction to do so. And we need to learn to go when God says go and not go when God doesn't say. You know, because we sometimes see the urgency and we, we detect the need. But I love one of the things also Chambers says is that the need doesn't necessarily constitute the call. Just because there was a problem, just because we find that Amaziah is looking at what's going on in the north and feels that he should enter into a conflict and battle, God wasn't calling him to do it. Be careful that you don't enter into a battle and fight a fight that God is not calling you to fight. And Joash, the king of Israel, took Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh and came to Jerusalem. And broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. So Jerusalem now, you know, the, the southern kingdom becomes invaded by the north. Totally the reverse of what um, Amaziah intended. And he took the gold, the silver, and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. And hostages and returned to Samaria. Such a waste of this whole thing. Just stepping out, not in accord with God's will. It's interesting to note how far Israel in the northern kingdom had moved away from God, that they now consider ransacking the temple acceptable. To them, Judah and the temple and the worship of God is no different to them than the worship of any pagan deity. The Israel in the north has started to move so far away. 
Now the rest of the acts of Joash which he did and his mights and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Joash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his stead. <clears throat> so that's kind of recap. We had a kind of a brief summary earlier, and now we're just kind of caught up with that. And carry on now. And Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived after the death of Joash, son of Jehoaz, king of Israel, 15 years. And the rest of the acts of Amaziah, again in the south, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Now they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lashish, but they sent after him to Lashish and slew him there. So that's just two successive kings that have been put to death uh, in Judah. And they brought him on his horses and was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah. After that, the king slept with his fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 41 years. So now, this is the second Jeroboam, okay, that comes now. We've obviously Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is the first king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and now the third, or the great-grandson of Jehu now, Jeroboam, comes to the throne. And he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made all Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel um, from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now this is interesting, because we're told the prophet, which was of Gath-Hifa. You know, you read through the book of Jonah, and there's very little prophecy. In fact, there's only one line in there as he speaks to uh, Nineveh and he says that you know basically you're going to be judged that's about the only line of prophecy and yet Jesus speaks of Jonah the prophet clearly there are other prophecies of Jonah that are not recorded in scripture but this is one that was recorded in scripture for the Lord saw the affliction of Israel that it was very bitter for there was not yet any shut up nor any left nor any helper for Israel And then to bring us to a close this morning. And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of Israel um, from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. You see, even with these wicked kings, the Lord is still showing his grace and his mercy because of his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus, and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? It's just an interesting comment, just in closing here, because Jeroboam, we're told here, is successful in recovering Damascus. So he kind of invades Syria. And the, the easy assumption to make is that, well, that's it now, the problem of Syria, the threat of Syria is now gone. But you see, all that was happening is, as Syria was passing off the scene from a, a, a position of power and strength, so the Assyrian Empire was beginning to rise. You know, we may think we have victory in something in our life that we've done without God. But we need to be very cautious because around the corner could be something bigger than we ever imagined. And we need God. Every day we need to walk by faith and live by grace. That needs to be our kind of our lives motto, to walk by faith and live by grace. We don't know what's coming. 
And we don't want to certainly get confident that one of the problems that we had has been dealt with, it's gone, whatever. Just as this king here. Whatever, you know, is around the corner could be bigger. We need to make sure that whatever we do, we're walking with God. And then none of these things will move us. And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel. And Zechariah, his son, reigned in his stead. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there are so many lessons here that are for us today. So many things that speak about, Lord, the conditions that we find ourselves in. Lord, our lives, our walk. And Father, we just see the need to walk with you. Lord, to to walk that walk of faith, trusting you, even when things are good and even when things are not good. Whatever the circumstance, just to trust you. And so, Lord, help us, we pray. To have our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. May we not get led astray by the things that have been left in the high places, things that we hadn't really dealt with. But Lord, may we have such a hatred towards sin. Lord, we pray you put that in our lives, in our hearts. That we don't want anything of the world, the flesh or the devil in our lives. But that our lives might be pleasing to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.